0: And it felt like it took till the last minute for God to give me the and I am just never, never do church that way. I'm always just know what chapter I'm in. I'm in the next chapter next week. It makes life easy as I prepare. So, again, this week kind of just just seeking God and um, wanting to kind of stay in this theme, but really felt like it was time for God uh, that God put on my heart to to get into a book study. So we're going to start a new book study today. And the title of this new series through First Thessalonians I'm calling Practical and Prophetic. You can write that down. The book of First Thessalonians is a very practical book where Paul gives us some practical Christian living advice that we can all grow and learn from. And it's also a very prophetic book. Every chapter in First Thessalonians, um, usually right at the end of the chapter, except for chapter 5, Paul gives us the promise of Jesus' coming, that Jesus is coming. He explains the details of the coming of the Lord. So what a you know, perfect timing to be in this book at this time. Now, since I've been here in Utah, um, we started in September of 2013 the Gospel of John. And uh, we've been through 22 books in the New Testament, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And it just so happens that 1st and 2nd Thessalonians were left to finish the New Testament. So I have 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Jude, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then we stopped in the middle of Acts. We'll get back to that and we will have taken you through the entire New Testament. So we'll get this one um, knocked out. Now, one of the things I always say about the Apostle Paul, the author of this book, the Apostle Paul was the greatest mind that God ever created. His writings, his, his, the way his mind worked, the way that God used him, nobody else. And I really could argue that not another person in human history, ha, you know, he wrote 14 books in the New Testament, that he personally was trained by Jesus post-resurrection. And again, his writings are just unparalleled in human history. He's the greatest mind that God ever used or created. And sometimes people that are very heady and, and, and smart, some of the smartest people in history, have struggled in other areas of life because of the way their mind works. When you're that type A personality or your mind works a certain way, you don't do as well in school. And some of the smartest people in the world flunked out of school and struggled socially. But the, the fascinating thing about the Apostle Paul, who is this egghead of a, of a, of a human being with this amazing intellect, he can also be very practical, which I love about Paul. Like he has the best of both worlds. He, he, as smart as he was, he didn't struggle in giving us everyday practical Christian living. And we get that in First Thessalonians. And so that's why the title of this new series, Through Thessalonians, is The Practical and The Prophetic. And, and they're both going to be uh, really fun. Let's set up the book of First Thessalonians um, just a little bit. If you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 16, we'll catch a little bit of background Um, by way of intro into the book of 1 Thessalonians. Now, one of the things that you guys understand is that um, you watch Paul's life chronicled through the book of Acts, right? It's kind of a history story of Paul and his first missionary journey and his second missionary journey, his third missionary journey, and and we get to see. And so um, where he was in life when he wrote certain things, we follow him through the book of Acts. So where Paul was when he first went to Thessalonica, was um, right here in, um, in Acts 16, and then 17 by 17 he gets there. 16 is on his way there. But I just wanted to share a few things out of this with you guys. Um, so in, in Acts 16, it says, listen, in verse number 6, it says, Now when they had gone through phygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. So the Holy Spirit said no. Paul had a heart to go to Asia right in this season. Now, where we are, Paul just finished his first missionary journey. You remember him and Barnabas had a fight over John Mark on the second missionary journey, and Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark with them. Paul said, I'm not taking him. He bailed on us on the last trip. We need somebody we can trust. Barnabas said, he's changed. You can trust him. And they had, the Bible says, no small dispute over John Mark. So what happened, the Holy Spirit separated and made two teams. Barnabas took John Mark. Paul takes Silas and Timothy and they head out on their second missionary journey. So this is where Paul is, right between first and second missionary journey, and he has a heart to go to Asia, but for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit says no and forbids them from going to Asia. Now, God has sovereignty and free will. We're going to see in chapter 1 of Thessalonians this word elect and that God chooses and God has a right and he he just he's done that. Now, why did he forbid him from going to Asia? I don't know what would Asia be different if the gospel gone during that time and Um, Or maybe Paul would have been killed on the way or something would have happened. And God, in his foreknowledge and in his wisdom, he knew what was best. And he said to Paul, no. And sometimes in life, God says to us, no. And so Paul's forbidden. And so after that, they came to Mysia and they tried to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit did not permit them again in verse 7 of Acts 16. And it says, listen, and, and in verse 9, it says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood pleading with him, saying, come over here to Macedonia to help us. And so now God is, is telling Paul, no, you can't go to Asia, and then gives him a vision of, of what the next step is in his life. And um, for me, this is my, one of my life verses here. And if you guys know me well enough, you've heard my testimony that um, this is where God called me into full-time ministry. It was in the early days of becoming a Christian. I had no idea what this meant, know no where it was going. But I was alone in my room, um, still living in L.A. before I even moved um, in, to Hemet in those early days. Brand, brand new Christian. And God's Holy Spirit made this verse, and it was I had an NIV Bible, jump off the, the pages and connect it to my heart. When I got to Hemet, I had a prophecy um, spoken over my life. And a pastor who was prophesying over me put his hand on my chest. And he said to me, what has God told you? And that's all he said. And immediately I knew this verse came to my mind. This is being a young Christian, six months old in the faith. The one thing that I knew God spoke to me was was what I'm about to read to you in this next verse. And I burst out into tears and I told him, God told me to preach the gospel. And he began to prophesy over me. And he confirmed that call of God in my life. Um, in that prophecy, in a a Holy Spirit moment, in my personal walk with Jesus, I'll never forget. But it says in verse 10, it says, Now after Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. And that was the verse that God jumped off the page and almost audibly, now I didn't hear an audible voice of God, but I, I don't know how to communicate how clear I knew God was speaking to me. And, and then again, when I went to him at, a few months later and he asked me, what did God say to you? This is what I responded to preach the gospel. Now at the time, you know, I didn't ask any questions to God. Will it be difficult? Will I, will I face trials? Will I suffer heartache? Will I have mountaintop experiences? Will I see victories? Will I experience times of being alone? And none of those questions, you know, and all those things in, in, in ministry, I just knew God had called me. What was funny was I ended up a few years later preaching the gospel to elementary students in children's ministries. God called me into children's ministry, and, you know, and I was okay with that. I was so cool because I felt like God didn't tell me preach the gospel means preaching the gospel to adults. I'm preaching the gospel. I'm preaching it to third through sixth graders you know and and I was okay with that and I was I'm going to stay here I'm going to preach the gospel to the elementary and to to the children's ministry until Jesus comes back because that's what he's told me to do he just didn't tell me where or how or when and then eventually God's call changed a few years ago when I became assistant pastor to a senior pastor and came out here to Willa and now I'm preaching the gospel in a different venue but my heart's always been with the kids and the children and that's where I started and preached the gospel so faithfully for so many years now what's fascinating is after that call Now again, I'm 20 years old, I'm a brand new believer, I have this Holy Spirit moment alone in my room where God tells me that I'm supposed to preach the gospel, Um, I don't have any idea what that means, I'm so green, I don't even know, like, how do I even attack that, do I go to Bible college, what do I do, Um, and the very next word in my Bible is the word, anybody? Not in verse 11, before that, the title, the word Lydia. I'm like, there's prophecy in that, that my future wife, her name was going to be Lydia. And so in all of this, God was speaking. What was really cool was, um, at the time, I didn't know there was going to be a Lydia in my future, but there was a Lydia in my life currently at the time. And it was my Aunt Lydia. It was the reason today why I walk with Jesus. Because my Aunt Lydia prayed for me. She was such a prayer warrior. She was such an encourager. She She was so full of the Holy Spirit. My dad's sister, Aunt Lydia... And every time I went and seen Aunt Lydia, she just could speak to my soul. She would say to me, I remember being a teenager and being late later, a couple of years before I got saved, and going to visit my Aunt Lydia. And I wasn't a bad place in life. I had begun just a lifestyle of just debauchery and um, just stuff, junk. And she looked me in the eyes and she said, How you doing? I burst into tears because it wasn't like, you know, when a New Yorker says to you, how you doing? You know, that's a different kind of thing. But when my aunt Lydia looked at me and she looked me in the eyes, she looked into my spirit and she wanted to know how I was doing with God. And because I was so broken and because I just I was I was just ashamed of myself. I began to cry and weep and and Lydia, I'm not doing well. And she and she would just encourage me and pray for me and tell me I'm praying for you. And, And I knew that to be true. So when I got saved. And then shortly after, God spoke to me out of Acts 16 that God called me to preach the gospel. I felt like when I saw this next word, Lydia, I thought I'm supposed to go. I got in my car and I drove to Pico Rivera. I didn't announce my trip or anything middle of the week. And I showed up at Aunt Lydia's house and came to her. And I said, Aunt Lydia, I asked Jesus in my heart and I'm, I'm saved. And she just wasn't shocked. She wasn't moved. She's just like, I know. I knew it was coming. I knew that, that God had a hold of your life and one day you were going to surrender. And so anyways, long story of my testimony, but um, then Paul is back to Paul's story. So Paul is, is um, in this area, and it says he sailed from there to Troas, and he ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day to Na- Na- Annapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of the part of Macedonia, a colony, and we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to Riverside, where prayers were customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to a woman who we met there. And now a cer- certain woman named Lydia heard us, and she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken of by the Apostle Paul. And when, and when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. So Paul is there. He meets this woman, Lydia. She's she's very prominent in culture. She's high society. She's a seller of purple. She's the owner of Nordstrom's. And um, Paul shares the gospel. She gets baptized. Her family gets baptized in the next section. um, There was a a young woman who was a girl possessed and she would have been um, low class and possessed with a demon and prophesying. And Paul casts the demons out of her. Jesus gets a hold of her life. They throw Paul in prison. You guys know the story that Paul and Silas are in prison. They don't have any poor meitis over their situation. They're worshiping and praising God. And I think God was hearing the worship of Paul and Silas in the Philippian prison. And he was kind of tapping his foot to the, to the beat of Paul and Silas singing. And that caused an earthquake in, in Philippi. But not an ordinary earthquake because the chains only fell off of the prisoners and the doors opened. And the Philippian jailer took his sword and he put it to his stomach and he said, you know, he was going to kill himself because he would be held responsible for the prisoners that escaped. And Paul says, stop, we are all here. And the Philippian jailer asked Paul one of the most fascinating questions and we get one of the most amazing answers. And he said, what must I do in verse 30 to be saved? And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So it's faith. The Bible says that you're saved by faith through grace, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That it's a faith of believing. It was, it was Abraham's faith that God accounted to him for righteousness because Abraham believed. And here we have in all of the Bible the most simple recipe for salvation that the Bible gives. I, I point out this one often in Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you're a believer in Jesus, be familiar with these two places in the Bible. Acts 16, 31, Romans 10, 9, and 10 to be able to share your faith very simply. And so Paul says to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your household and you will be saved. And so it's in this context that Paul is in Philippi and then they go on and they find out Paul is a Roman citizen and they they ask him to leave peaceably because they they beat a Roman citizen and they made some mistakes. And and, and then Paul's not the type of guy that's just going to bail. And so he he make sure that the church is able to meet and, and have their freedoms. Paul leaves Philippi on his way to um, and ends up in Thessalonica. And that brings us back to um, now in verse chapter 17 of Acts. If you turn there, I'm not going to go through it. You can actually do it on your own if you'd like. But that's the setup, preaching Christ at Thessalonica. Um, what was fascinating about Acts 16, have some notes here. They're not for necessarily for this study. But in the end of Acts 16, what do you see? You see Paul preaching to Lydia, Paul preaching to the demon-possessed girl, and then and then Paul preaching to the Philippian jailer. So you have the high class, the low class, and the middle class all come into faith in Jesus. And what is what is the outcome? What is the um, takeaway? Is that Jesus is for all people, that the salvation of Jesus is for all people, and wherever you find yourself, and you know God is for all people, and the, and the love of Christ is for Now, back to Thessalonians. That was kind of our setup. Now, we won't do that every week, obviously, but the first week we want to cover a little bit of history getting into where we are. Now, maybe you're newer to church. Let me speak to you for a moment. Maybe you're newer to the Bible, and this stuff is kind of foreign. The Apostle Paul, detailed in the book of Acts, traveled, and everywhere he went, it says that he would begin with a group of believers, Jewish believers, and he would start in the synagogues, and then Paul would build churches. He would he would he would teach the people. He would stay in a city for a season until a church built up. He raised up leaders, and then Paul would leave, and he would go to another city. And then and then what he would do is he would as he would find out how the church was progressing, he would write a letter back to that church, helping them out, instructing them, correcting them, um, fixing things that were going wrong, encouraging things that were going well. And that's what we have in the Bible as the fourteen books. That Paul writes in the New Testament we call them the epistles or letters and in these are the, the letters that Paul would write back so what we have now is a letter that Paul would have written after he left Thessalonica he ends up there he begins to preach there there's some trouble what was fascinating about Thessalonica which was different from a lot of the cities Paul was in originally he only spent three weeks there and so he did all of this in three weeks and then he leaves And and the book of Thessalonica or the book of Thessalonians written to the city Thessalonica was probably some of the first writing of Paul, probably written in 52, 55, 20, 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul would have left there on his missionary journey, got word of some stuff going on, and then he would have sent back this letter. Now, what's fascinating is that as little time as Paul spent there, he covered some major topics with these young believers. The, 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 the um, rapture of the church, the Antichrist, end times events. And again, like I said, the practical, we'll see, and the prophetical, but major events. And so I just want to say through that that Paul, with this young Thessalonican church, he gave them some big topics, and he gave them some things that he trusted them with that they could handle, even as young believers, that prophecy is for all of us, that, that two-thirds of the Bible is is prophetic well, not two thirds. One third of the Bible is prophetic. Twenty five to thirty two percent somewhere in there is prophecy. And so it's important that we follow biblical prophecy. That We're not afraid of it. We don't stay away from it. That it is important if God would spend that much time um, telling the future that we study it, we understand it and we look at it and no better place than through First Thessalonians um, as we go through this. All right. Are we ready? Did I say I think I did But one more time um, in in every chapter in Thessalonians, we get a mention that Jesus is coming back for us to be waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. Now, you know, one of the things I just say a million times, and if you're if you're a part of this church, you just you get tired of this stuff. I'm I'm sure because I say it so often, but, you know, it's just true. And I want to encourage us and maybe there's somebody out there that hasn't heard it yet. But the fact that Jesus is coming back is so Bible. It it's, it's doesn't make us, because there, there, there used to be this kind of idea that if, if we're um, people who believe that we're, we're looking up and waiting for Jesus to come back, that we're, we're fanatical, or we're Jesus freaks, or we're kind of weird Christians. But that's just not the case. If you can read English and you can read the New Testament, you're a person who believes that Jesus is coming back. It, it is a central theme through the entire New Testament over and over and over again. One day I'm going to read the entire New Testament, all 27 books in a time, and I'm going to mark every place in the New Testament that promises of Jesus' return. I know there's hundreds, and I'm not counted them, but here just alone in this book, you're going to see in every single chapter of 1 Thessalonians a promise of the return of Jesus Christ. And so we need to be ready. We need to be a people who are ready. I'm actually going to start with that in a minute. So let's get into it. First Thessalonians chapter one. And again, I hope you have your Bibles out or some kind of reference or another tablet on your lap next to you so you can follow along with me. And it says, Paul He starts the epistle with his name. Salvanus. I think Silas was like, why doesn't he just call me Silas? That's Silas and Timothy. So the three that were there that were traveling with Paul in this time to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to pick up and I want you to highlight this little word here in verse 1, in God, because we, we talked about it last week, in Jesus, in Christ, in God. You see that um, little phrase repeated in many different places in the New Testament. The, the fact that we're in God accompanies and goes with it all of the promises of God. When you're in God, now you also have in your life, All of the promises of God. And we just came out of the series about the promises of God and applying those. And that every one of those are, are given to you as a gift from God. God has not given you a spirit of fear, but that of love and of power and of a sound mind. God will provide all of your needs in Christ Jesus. I will never leave you nor forsake you. On and on and on. Hundreds of promises of God's word that are for you. Listen, if you're in Christ. And maybe what I'm about to say is not the most popular speech. And sometimes I hear people say, oh, the church and pastors today, they'll never talk about hell and they're afraid of, you know, and, and it, it doesn't fill seats. But you know I want to tell you this? I, I don't have any desire to be needlessly offensive or to try to scare you into heaven because that doesn't work. But I do want to tell you that the Bible does teach hell, that Jesus believed in hell. There is a real hell. It's a real place. And we do preach it. And I'm not one that fits into that category that's afraid of it, but not to scare you. It's not, it's not intended to scare you. The Bible says, listen, the Bible says what will compel you to come to Jesus, it's not a fear of hell. It doesn't work. I had a fear of hell. I understood hell. I believed in hell. Nobody taught it to me or anything, but as a kid, I, just, I had the concept there wasn't heaven and hell, and I didn't want to go to hell. And, and, and that did, But that didn't motivate me to, 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 to stop the lifestyle I was living. But you know what did? The love of Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says it's the love of Jesus that compels me. And the night that I got saved, the night that I came out, it had everything to do with feeling and knowing this overwhelming power of God's Holy Spirit telling me, I love you, I love you, I love you. And when when it was the love of God that compelled my life. It was the love of God that changed my life. You know, after I became a Christian alone in my room in March of 1994, 20 years old, it wasn't the last time that I sinned in, in some of the major sins that I had been involved with. And I struggled for a season. I went through a season of about four or five, six months of, of, of starting to walk with the God and starting to read my Bible. I began to go to church and, and then having a bad a relapse and doing things that was, was terrible and just like living the way I used to live. And, and I can remember after just a, a time of failure in that early season of, of Christian living, Feeling like God needed to punish me. God needed to break my leg, kill my dog, do something terrible to me so that I could feel better about myself. Who was, um, and I don't even like I hate the word hypocrite right here because I, I don't ever feel like I was hypocritical. My heart wanted to serve God, and I was struggling. And my heart was crying out to God in my sins. And Paul says in, in Romans 7 the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I, I don't want to do, I do. The things that I do want to do, I don't do. And that, that same struggle. But my heart was crying out. And, and and through that, what God did, God blessed my heart and he didn't ignore my actions, but he forgave my actions. And when I felt like he should have punished me to feel better, I came to him in repentance. And I said, God, I understand you should punish me. And God said to me, but I love you. And that was the hardest thing to hear. It was the most graceful, most powerful thing in my life ever in a time of low, just blowing it and feeling like I needed to be punished by God to feel better about myself, God would come to me in this early season and He would repeat to me over and over and over and over again, I love you. I I said, how could you love me? Did you see what I just did? Did you see where I've just been? And He said, I know. I was there. I still love you. I still love you. I love you. I love you. And listen, it was the love of God through that season of my life that made me want to do right, that made me want to stop with that nonsense In my life and crying out to God in those seasons. And every time God's coming and saying, in a real way, I love you. I always understood John 3.16. I memorized it in junior high. But I didn't understand it. I didn't feel it. I didn't know the love of God emotionally. I knew it intellectually. But in this season, God moved that from my heart, from my head to my heart. 18 inches from no salvation to salvation when the love of God entered my heart. And now, now it's not an intellectual thing for me. I've experienced. And I know the love of God is real. And it's for me. And it's for you. Now, back to hell. That's, 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 hopefully you caught it. That it's the love of God that changes lives. There is a hell. Listen to what the Bible says. Now, in God, we have all of the promises. Now, turn with me, if you would, just real quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and verse number 9. It says, Do you not know that unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extorters will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, I know too many people who are living in these sins. And when you talk to them and encourage them in the love of God and in the danger of continuing these lifestyles, they they, they say, well, God understands. I'm a good person. God's not going to judge me. Listen, don't take my word for it. Seven times this this phrase is repeated in the New Testament, followed by this word, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, I'm a child of God. No, you're not. You're not a child of God unless it's been given to you, unless you've received Jesus in your life and repented of your sins, and you can't be a child of God and continue in practice in these sins. And it doesn't say those, we've all, I'm, I'm guilty of everything on this list. Well, okay, well then, then what are you saying? You don't make any sense. No, but listen, I don't walk in those things. I don't practice those things. I've been guilty. Look at the next verse. The next verse, chapter, verse 11, it says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So many of these believers that he's speaking to here, he says, "You you used to practice these things, but you were sanctified. You were washed in the blood. I've been washed in the blood. You can be washed in the blood. You need to be washed in the blood." You know what? What I, what I was going to say that I was going to say that was unpopular was this idea in John's gospel, because I hear this too often. Oh, we're all the children of God. We're all just God's little children down here on the earth. Now that's cute, but it's just not true. It's not biblical. You're not a child of God. Listen to what Jesus said. And many, but as many as received him, 1 John, I'm sorry, not 1 John, the Gospel of John chapter 1, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. So who are the children of God everybody? Well, that's not what it says here in the Bible. It says, but as many as received him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God. You have to receive Jesus. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. Now listen, don't get me wrong. Let me be clear, 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 clear. You don't have to stop those sins that I listed, that I read out of the Bible, that are repeated seven times in the New Testament. You don't have to stop those sins to become a Christian. You have to ask Jesus into your life. And then ask Him to help you to stop those sins. Begin to point your life in His direction. Repent and ask forgiveness of those things. Because what, I don't, what I'm not preaching, and I want to be clear, is that you have to clean up your life and then you can come to God. That's not Bible. God is for broken people. The thief on the cross was hanging on a cross seconds away from going and separation from God for all of eternity. He didn't have time to clean up his life. He didn't have time to go attend a few church services and pay tithes and do good deeds. He was a rotten individual whose heart believed in Jesus and repented on his deathbed. And what did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Today you'll be with me in paradise. We're going to meet Him. He's redeemed. He's forgiven. He's chosen. He's loved. And so again... But, but what I don't want to preach and what I don't want to get caught preaching because one day I'm going to stand before God. I'm going to give account for the things that I said. And here's what I don't want to be a part of. God bless anybody else and in their own decision. But for me, I, I don't want to ever preach that you can continue to live a sinful lifestyle and you're going to be okay because the good old boy upstairs understands. Does he love you? Absolutely. Did he die for your sins? Absolutely. Is there is there a a responsibility that you have? There is. It's to trust and believe in Jesus and begin to allow Him to work in your life. God loves you so much, He's going he's to take you just as you are. But He's not going to leave you just where you are. All right. Hey, we've got a, nine more verses to cover in just a few minutes. So, But listen, back to 1 Thessalonians. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians. That was in God. That was just that little thing um, that, that we're in God. And I want us to understand because that, that verse is, that is here, but it's repeated many, many, many times. That concept is repeated many, many times in the Bible, the New Testament, in God, in Christ, in Jesus, um, in the Holy Spirit. And so um, I wanted to flesh that out a little bit for you. Now, in, um, it says grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, grace is is Paul's Thing You know, when you read Peter's writings, when you read John's writings, guys who wrote multiple books in the New Testament, they don't talk a lot about grace. I think John in five um, writings, the gospel of John, first, second, third John, Revelation mentions the word grace only seven times. Peter only a few times, but Paul hundreds of times in his writings. So this is Paul's um, the grace of God, his ministry to you and me. And verse two, it says, we give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers. And So Paul tells the Thessalon- Thessalon- Thess- why is that so hard because there 's so many different ways to say it Thessalonians Thessalonica anyways the Thessalonians that he 's praying for them and that he' always um, making mention of them in our prayers so just real really quick, I want to encourage us again as believers that we are called to pray for one another um, if somebody asks you to pray for them, you know don 't just text them some praying hands that don 't count you actually have to pray you got to Spend some time, pause, get alone, get away, and, and, and use words and pray for folks. But I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to be practical in your praying. You know, I, I used to feel guilty like as a pastor, one of my responsibilities, personally given responsibilities, is that I should be, and I think it's right and it's true, I should be praying for the congregation and people that sit, um, come to this church. And it's my responsibility to be praying for them. But It's a lot of faces, a lot of names to remember, and I can write things down. And living in guilt because I'm not always praying for everybody like I should. So to kind of ease you and me of some of that guilt, what I, what I do is, is I ask God to put folks on my heart. If I'm driving in the car, no matter where I'm at, and, and oftentimes I'll just randomly think of a person from church in life. And when I do, I always think of that. I always take that as God putting that person in my mind and my heart in the moment to pray for them. And I'll stop. I'll pause in that moment. I'll pray for them. As I'm spending time in prayer, if, if somebody randomly comes to my mind, you know, sometimes I think, oh, it could be an enemy distracting me, which he often tries to do. But what I do is I just begin to pray for that person. So when God puts somebody, and that's biblical too, Paul says that in another place, that as um, he has remembrance, he begins to pray for people. So when God puts someone on your heart, you can pray for them. And then in verse three, it says remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the sight of our God and father. Um, In verse three, Paul says that he remembers without ceasing their work of faith and their labor of love, and their patience of hope. So Paul takes this verse to commend and encourage and thank um, the the church in Thessalonica for their work and for their labor of love. And so I felt like it would be maybe a good opportunity in this part to thank our church here at Tula Springs. And so I want to thank everybody who's been a part of this ministry over the last seven years. Some of you have come and gone and. You know, God used you in being instrumental in the building of this church. Some of you are here today continuing to serve and love God. And it takes an entire village to do what God has done here. And not one person, you know, is, is, is credited with what God's doing here. Every person has a part. And I've, I've been so blessed to be a part of what God's done here. And the church's generosity and the church's workforce. And, and we've done everything. We've bought our building. We've remodeled it. We paid almost zero in labor costs. To, to be able to remodel our building, all with volunteer labors, all kinds of people, twenty five different people come up from California in different times and and serve and build different things. I'm looking in the in the back of the sanctuary here right now as I speak, and I see all the work that a crew from California came up and did. And so, um, so blessed to be a part of the the family of God, the family of believers who have come together and to built this place. And um, so then let's go on. And it says in verse. Number four, knowing beloved brethren by your election by God. Now this word election is kind of a buzzword in the Bible. I'm not going to spend no no time on it today. It's not my personality to argue about these things and be right or be wrong. Um, I I will highlight it though for a few. The word election here, it means called. And, And the idea is that God... Um, chooses and calls folks and jesus said nobody comes to the father or nobody comes to me unless my father first calls them or draws them and so none of us have come to faith in jesus christ unless the father drew you first that's bible that's jesus and that and that god calls the elect well how do you know if you're elect well if you receive jesus in your heart as your lord and savior you're elect well what if i don't well then you're not elect and, and one side is the election of God. The Bible says in Romans that God elects based on foreknowledge, that he predestines based on foreknowledge. But the Bible also teaches very clearly that God gives us each a free will. So some would choose that God chooses who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. And it's only based on election. And um, I don't personally stand in that camp. I stand in another camp that believes that God does choose. But we also have free will and that both are true. How do you reconcile the two that seem contradictory? I don't know. I'm not even going to try. The best way I've ever heard it is like this: it's a river. And one bank and one bank are the two truths, but the truth is in the middle where the river is, election and free will. But John 3.16 is pretty clear. That whosoever believes in me should not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever. Anybody, not just those that God predestined or pre-chose, but it says he predestined and pre-chose Based on foreknowledge anyway. So he knew who would choose and who wouldn't choose. But what I don't want to, you know, what I fully reject is that there are people out there that have no chance of becoming Christian because they're not elect. That, that I don't believe the Bible. I'm positive that that's not the heart of our God. And if you want to come to Jesus, that Jesus is for all people and every people. So here it says, um, but there is an election. I mean, we can't argue. That's biblical. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. And then, but how did they know they were elected here in the Thessalonians? He tells us in verse five, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know, what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Now, um, another thing that I I oftentimes kind of try to highlight is the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. You remember Moses? We studied him a couple weeks ago. What did he do when he killed the Egyptian? He looked left, he looked right. Where did he not look? He didn't look up. And then he buried the Egyptian in a shallow grave, you know, and kind of hoped nobody would know and see it. But he took out of the equation God and the factor that that God is there. You know, one of the things through all the coronavirus we're learning, right, is the very least we've learned this that things can change very fast. That God and His economy to make something that's prophetic or biblical come true. There, there could be a, a, a piece that we've never seen, a, a subtle change, a quick change, and immediately everything can change. I, I didn't hear anybody ever predicting this, this isolation and this was happened through Bible prophecy or anything else. And yet one little turn and the entire world, first time in human history the entire world has gone through something like this of, of isolation and social distancing and, and just one little coronavirus and everything changes. And, and my point is just that things can change very quickly, and as we move forward into the future of what the Bible describes as the return of Jesus, a one world government, a one world economy, an antichrist, false prophet, trials, tribulations of of biblical proportions through the, the book can all happen fast It can all come quickly in one little tweak you know sometimes in um, we, we try to pick in the world who the Antichrist is and we try to find certain guy with the characteristics of the Antichrist. But what we forget in that, and it's fun to do sometimes, we won't know. Listen, if you're a believer, one thing we're going to learn in First Thessalonians is that we won't be here when the Antichrist is revealed. But the church will be removed first, so we don't, we'll never know until we get, well, we'll know we're in heaven, we're looking down, but we won't see it before we leave this world who the Antichrist is. He won't be revealed until the church is removed. So it's useless in trying to, decide and figure out who the Antichrist is, sometimes it's fun. You know, we've seen everybody in the last 40 years be the Antichrist or an Antichrist type. But one of the things that that you can't forget is that Satan will fill the Antichrist. So whoever this person is, and they have to be alive on planet Earth today. They've probably always been alive. Satan has probably always had somebody in the ready because he doesn't know when Jesus is coming. He doesn't know the rapture, the return of the Lord. So, I imagine Satan has always had to have kind of somebody or a few somebodies prepared. And then when the time comes and when the rapture happens, at that time Satan's going to have to pick somebody and move. But trying to decide who the rapture is and, or the, the antichrist is based on who they are now, it doesn't really make sense because everything's going to change when, when Satan himself enters this person. This person could be Pee Wee Herman. And when, when Satan enters him with the power and lying wonders of, of heaven. The archangel Satan, this guy could become Pee Wee Herman to Rico Suave, the greatest politician, leader, world leader has ever known with the power of Satan. So those things will change. Um, All right. So then we it says in verse number six, and you become followers of us and the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So the Thessalonican church, they're going to face some persecution. We're going to see, or if you read Acts chapter 17, where Paul gets there, you'll you'll see the history. They're in the house of Jason. They have some problems. The Jews are coming. They're getting persecuted in the church in Thessalonica. And Paul says they face this affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus said in John's gospel in chapter 16, In verse 33, I think this is an important verse for, again, for you and I as believers to fully understand. But Jesus said about these trials and tribulations, and I preach this often. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. Listen, in the world, Jesus speaking, you will have tribulation. Jesus promises for you and I, uh, you will have tribulation. And then he says this, but be of good cheer I have overcome the world. I love it. But don't worry about it. Have no fear. Don't be afraid of any of those things. You're going to face tribulation and be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Now, one thing we have to be crystal clear on this tribulation that Jesus is talking about here that you and I will face is not the tribulation of the great tribulation, the seven year period, two completely different things. One is the the trials and tribulations of everyday life that we face the ups and downs of life, sickness and death and trials and tribulations and hardships. And God's wrath, Revelation 6 through 19, being poured out upon the world in the tribulation and great tribulation is something completely different. We are not. Um, Thessalonians is very clear. We are not appointed to wrath. The Bible is very clear that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you will escape these things. Even Jesus says here, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You know, it's always so, seems so contradictory, right? For Jesus on one hand to say, hey, you're going to face terrible things. And then with like a smile on his face at the same time saying, ah, but don't worry about it. I'm with you. But be of good cheer. But I'm gonna say, A bunch of bad stuff's going to happen. You want to be happy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why? Because I'll be with you and I've overcome the world. I've not appointed you to wrath. I'm going to come get you. And back to Thessalonians. It says... Um, In verse 7, so that you may become examples to all who are in Macedonia, Acacia, who believe. From you, for you, for from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Acacia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. So again, he's just encouraging them. They've been examples to the believers. You know, I I do highlight in the end of verse 7, that the example that they were was specifically biblically to those who believe, the end of verse 7. You know, I heard pastors say, oh, we're, you know, they, they were great examples to everybody outside. And I'm sure that's true, and we were supposed to be examples to the world. But this specific context says to those who believe. And again, that, that we, we are examples to one another and to those who believe. And then in verse number um, 9, it says, For they themselves declare co- concerning us, what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So we're getting to the salvation of, of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul gets there and in three weeks there's a revival of believers and, um, and he's encouraging them in verse 9 that they came from, they turned from idols to serve the living and the true God, verse 9. Romans chapter 5 is a great promise for us, you guys. And it says in Romans 5, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations produce perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by His blood, shall we be saved from wrath through Him. The end of verse 10, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Again, the ever-extended invitation of God's free gift to you of salvation. That Jesus, while you were yet sinners, died for you. He loved you. Before you were in Him. He loved you before you were um, perfect. Not that we'll ever be perfect. Before you stopped these sins. While you were yet a sinner, Christ still died for you. And He loves you. And He says to to you, come just as you are. One of the most powerful songs. The Billy Graham Evangelist Association for so many years. Billy Graham led millions of people and preached to millions of people in live audiences. At the end of every one of his crusades, they'd play this song, come as you are. And so I encourage you today. We've got one more verse left, but I'm going I'm to pray for you in a minute. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to ask Jesus into your heart to be your Lord and Savior. I'm not asking any of you to be a perfect person. I'm asking you to believe in a perfect God who loves you and who can fix you and who can heal you. And what I'm also warning you against is continuing to live a sinful life without repentance and without the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And believe that you can do that and be okay. can't. But you can come to Jesus. And Jesus can fix you and heal you. You don't have to be perfect. Now, um, last verse, and then I'm going to pray for you and give you an opportunity to ask Jesus in your heart. And to wait for His Son from heaven. Now, that's the verse here in this chapter that promises the coming of Jesus. And I said it's going to be in every chapter. I'm not lying. It's in every chapter of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. To wait for His Son from heaven. So that's where we are right now today, is we're waiting for Jesus from heaven. This coronavirus thing that we're going through is absolutely 100% a trial run. It could be a lot more, but at the very least, it's a trial run for what's coming prophetically. And so we're encouraging you. This has been an opportunity to get people's attention and know that Jesus is absolutely coming. So He's coming from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now here it says Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. When we get to chapter 5 in verse number 9, it says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Same exact idea repeated in Thessalonians that as believers, why do I so strongly believe in a pre-tribulation rapture? This is a big reason, because we will not face wrath. When you get to Revelation chapter six, where the great tribulation or where the tribulation begins, then we see the very first thing that happens is the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And it is the absolute wrath of God upon the world. By the time the four horsemen ride, we don't even get to the the fifth, sixth and seventh seal there. By the time the four horsemen ride, a third of the population is dead. It is the wrath of God. Completely different, right? That's a tribulation different from the tribulation you and I face on a day to day basis. But Jesus said he'll, he'll spare it. He'll spare us. Verse 10, deliver us from the wrath to come. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys. Hey, don't go anywhere just yet. Let me pray for you, and then we're going to be out of here. So, hey, wherever you are right now, you know, in church we have customs. We ask people to stand up, to come forward, to be here. Jesus never in the Bible ever called anybody privately. He Every time, you go find one for me where it's just kind of on the side, and Jesus doesn't want to let anybody know doesn't happen. It was required that everybody was unashamed. And the Bible says that to be unashamed of Jesus and unashamed of the gospel. You know, I want to talk about a scary verse in the Bible. The Bible says that if you're, if you're ashamed of Jesus, when you get to heaven, that Jesus is going to be ashamed of you before the Father. I think that's the last place that any of us would want to be. And so to be unashamed of the gospel, unashamed of the power of Jesus in our lives. So I'm going to ask you in your home right now, raise your hand, some gesture, if you if you want to receive Jesus in your heart as your Lord and Savior, raise your hand right now, stand up where you are, and I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to ask you to pray out loud, repeat after me, and receive Jesus in your heart, and receive the free gift, and then know that if you say this from your heart, that you're a child of God, amen? Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, please come into my heart, be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. Wash me clean in the blood of Jesus Christ. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Make me a child of God. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you guys. We love you so much. Can't wait. We're going to be seeing everybody together real soon. We'll keep you posted. God bless you guys. Have a great week.